You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Election security and two ways of hacking the vote. DHS points out that the states are getting better about sharing election security information. ISIS sets the template for terrorist information operations. Black energy is back in Poland and Ukraine with new gray energy malware. Diplomatic targets are prospected in Central Asia. North Carolina, recovering from hurricane damage, also faces some ransomware. And Silicon Valley governance receives scrutiny. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, October 17, 2018. Election security is much on people's minds as the U.S. nears its midterm elections, set for the beginning of November, and the EU prepares for elections next year. The concerns are twofold. First, there's the prospect of election hacking proper, in which adversaries or partisans manipulate vote counts, disrupt polling, or interfere with registration. Concerns about election hacking proper are serious, but it's not clear that this has so far, in the U.S. at least, risen above the customary election background noise. That noise is the ward healer corruption, ballots cast from cemeteries, and the usual array of low-level sleaze one associates with machine politics. The typical forms such sleaze might take are, for example, voter fraud, in the U.S. a red worry, or voter suppression, in the U.S. a blue worry. And it's worth noting that both sides, in their public woofing, tend to deny that the things the opposition worries about actually happen. The second concern is perhaps more serious and less tractable. Information operations by nation-states aimed at inducing mistrust and fissures in the countries they're targeting. This sort of activity, propaganda tuned for the Internet age, is what outfits like the Internet Research Agency carry out. The Internet Research Agency, you'll recall, is the notorious St. Petersburg troll farm called out by Western investigators and intelligence services as behind a large number of fictitious online persona. It's also run by Russian intelligence services, although Moscow, of course, denies this. The threat of information operations is very real. It's been observed in the U.S. and Europe, and this is what principally worries the EU. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security yesterday downplayed the reported increase in threats to midterm elections. The Hill reports that Christopher Krebs, 
head of the department's National Protection and Programs Directorate, the NPPD, yesterday told a conference it's not an uptick in activity. Instead, he thinks that state and local election officials have gotten better at information sharing and about reporting the targeting of election systems such as voter registration databases. In this, they've advanced considerably since the 2016 election. Krebs added, quote, Are we seeing an uptick? I don't know if we are. I think we're seeing a consistent and persistent level of activity. End quote. So an increase in reporting isn't necessarily correlated with an increase in the level of threat. The Department of Homeland Security also reminds everyone that the voting data security firm Anomaly found in black markets is for the most part already public, as we noted in our discussion yesterday. That activity may well be ordinary criminal-to-criminal stuff, selling personal data to other crooks for use in committing identity theft or other forms of fraud. The prices reported don't seem particularly high, more in the mob-soldier range than an intelligence service's budget lines. I spoke with cybersecurity and national security author Kim Zetter about election security. Her recent feature in the New York Times magazine is titled The Crisis of Election Security. Securing the machines is sort of the, the, long, um, the long haul way of addressing this. Um, but you're never going to get a machine that's fully secure and, and not hackable. So what you have to do is you have to have a system in place that would help you know in the first place whether or not the software has been altered, and we don't have that right now. Um, we don't have the ability to examine the software at all uh, once it's on machines because it's, it's proprietary software, and the voting machine vendors um, have gone to court to prevent anyone from looking at their software. Um, and we don't have sufficient audits in place that would compare, well, we do have paper ballots, that would compare the paper ballot against the digital tallies um, to uncover discrepancies. So we've really been um, almost willfully resistant to um, engaging in methods that would actually tell us if there was a problem with our elections. And that's always been very curious to me. If there's almost, there's this, there's a sort of willful resistance to actually taking the steps needed to ensure the integrity of election outcomes. And what do you think's behind that? Why, why do you suppose that is? The voting machine vendors uh, were very resistant and uh, engaged in strong lobbying activities for many years to prevent even uh, the paper trails from being added to paperless machines. It's always been very curious to me um, why they had such an interest in resisting that. Um, But it wasn't just them. Election officials were really swayed by the voting machine vendors. They were really under the thrall of, of voting machine vendors for a long time. Um, and would follow their lead on many things. And so they sort of um, parroted the arguments of vendors that the paper trails would, uh, it would be more expensive to install printers, that the printers would cause problems at the polls, um, just, uh, you know, it would be inconvenient for disabled voters who couldn't see them. A lot of arguments against that. And election officials were, you know, sort of the driving Uh, I guess the end stop, right? So if if they decide that they don't want them, it's not going to happen. And a lot of that is because uh, here in the United States, uh, the elections are are run at the state level. They are not just, no, there's actually, they're run at the county level. Mm. So the secretary of state, in many cases, is sort of the chief election official, but doesn't really have a lot of involvement in the day-to-day running of elections. And, And elections don't just happen, you know, when you go to the polls, there's a lot of 
prep work and a lot of uh, smaller elections that take place throughout the year um, that involve sort of ongoing activity. And Secretary of State uh, will be involved in, let's say, setting um, procedures, maybe some protocols. But even that, um, it's sort of high level. And uh, they engage only when, uh, in the past, only when there's been a problem. Um, and so really county uh, officials who are, for the most part, quite often not tech savvy at all, um, are left, have been left, to make these decisions on their own. And that's how the voting machine vendors have become so influential. That's Kim Zetter, longtime cybersecurity and national security reporter. She's also author of the book Countdown to Zero Day. Our CyberWire special edition interview with her on election security is released today. You'll find that in your podcast feed. ESET warns that the threat actor behind Black Energy, involved in past attacks against sections of Ukraine's power grid, is back. This time it's infected three energy and transport companies in Poland and Ukraine. ESET notes that the group has developed a new malware suite, Grey Energy, and that it appears positioned for further campaigns. Reuters says that ESET doesn't call out a nation-state as responsible, but naming Black Energy associates the activity with the GRU. Others, notably Britain's GCHQ, have called out Black Energy, also known as Sandworm in FireEye's nomenclature, as an operation of the Russian Military Intelligence Agency. There's also a reported spike in Russian activity, or at least activity by people who speak the Russian language, against diplomatic targets in Central Asia. ESET and Kaspersky track the campaign as Dust Squad and Nomadic Octopus. This seems to be conventional espionage. A great deal of it seems to be concentrated in Kazakhstan. Onslow County, North Carolina, badly hit by this season's Atlantic hurricanes, has suffered a cyber attack that seems timed to kick the region while it's down and vulnerable. The Onslow Water and Sewer Authority, called Onwasa, disclosed Monday that it had been the victim of a ransomware attack that's crippled its systems. The attack was delivered by a phishing email carrying the Emotet Trojan. Onwasa compared the attack to the ransomware that hit the city of Atlanta, Georgia, and Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. Until remediation is complete, Onwasa will use manual systems to recover from storm damage, deliver services, and restore things to normal. The utility will not pay the ransom. Law enforcement authorities, including the FBI, are investigating. Facebook's recent data handling, content moderation, and privacy issues today attracted a fresh set of furies. The state treasurers of Rhode Island, Illinois, and Pennsylvania, and the New York City Comptroller announced that they're joining Trillium Asset Management's shareholder proposal to push Mark Zuckerberg out of his chairman's role at the company. It's not going to happen, if only because Mr. Zuckerberg controls most of Facebook's supervoting shares, giving him the equivalent of 59% of the say in what goes on. But it's an indication that Facebook's governance and the governance of Silicon Valley companies generally will continue to receive close and not particularly friendly scrutiny. Facebook's former security chief Alex Stamos, from his new perch at Stanford University, has announced what he's calling the Stanford Internet Observatory. It will be designed to address issues of tech governance and policy in ways intended to ameliorate some of the negative effects technology is, by consensus, having on society at large. Of course, there are good effects, too. We don't want to lose the good with the bad.
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Craig Williams. He's the director of Talos Outreach at Cisco. Craig, it's good to have you back. Um, Today we want to touch on FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, There is no shortage of this, uh, particularly on the marketing side of things. And I know this is is something that kind of gets your hackles up. Absolutely. Um, You know, for those of us who are lucky enough to be at DevCon, you may have seen our live show where we discussed some specific examples of this. Um, (laughs) But if you weren't, uh, we've all seen this unroll online, right? A security research team finds a bug, and then seemingly all that data is taken from them by the marketing department who climbs the Empire State Building uh, and grabs onto it while waving down at the people scaring them. And that's kind of what we see a lot of the time. And the problem with that is twofold. Number one, by unnecessarily spreading that fear, you cause people to misprioritize their response, right? It can be a severe security issue, but not be a high priority, right? You can have a high severity exploit that's going to be very difficult to attack and very difficult to attack remotely. And that shouldn't be a high priority, uh, obviously, unless there's extenuating circumstances. Right. Uh, and number two, when you do that, when you cry wolf every single time, people tune you out. And so you've got to try and maintain your credibility as a security research team and, you know, hold the reins a little bit and tell marketing, calm down. And we're so lucky at Cisco that we work so well with our marketing team that we've been very successful at avoiding this because we want to make sure that we maintain that integrity, right? It's it's very similar to how we handle our threat intelligence. You know, when we go out, if we don't have all the answers, that's what we start the blog with, right? We don't have all the answers, but here's what we do have. Uh, and so I think when it comes down to security marketing, that's a good way to approach it and say, look, here's an issue. Here's the facts about the issue. Is this important? And then give them the honest truth. Don't try and overhype it because, you know, at the end of the day, there are going to be high severity, high urgency issues. 
And the thing is, you've got to help identify what those are and then use that to your advantage, right? If you want to go shout something from the rooftops, be patient. Something will come along. Something always does, right? Uh, we remember from the last year or so, right? We had, uh, what was it? Uh, Want to cry, not pet yet, inside of a 60-day window. Mm-hmm. Like, definitely lots of stuff to talk about there. And then we had just more recently Olympic Destroyer. And so there are super high severity cyber attacks. Absolutely. But we've got to be sure that when we identify them, we're not just trying to spread fear or uncertainty or doubt because that's not helpful to anyone. And it actually hurts our users because they don't know how to properly respond and what priority to respond in. Yeah. And it seems to me like it also spreads confusion, which doesn't do the industry good as a whole. Right. And it, I think in mainstream media reflects this, right? A lot of the time they may not respond right away because they don't know if an issue is actually going to end up being super high urgency. Hmm. So how do you handle internally uh, that communications process with the marketing team? Because you, you, know, you, you have different impulses than they do. They want to get out there and, and share the, the latest news, the thing that could you know, lead to that big sale. Um, where, where do you meet in the middle on that? It's a really good question. So our playbook is very similar to almost like an incident response team, right? We break threats down into different categories and each category has a different priority. Each priority has a different set of uh, marketing things that can happen, a different set of PR things that can happen. And so once we decide on where it hits from a severity or urgency perspective, we then can take out plans of action. We don't necessarily do all the plans all the time, right? Sometimes we just do a couple of them. Sometimes we do do all of them. It just depends on what the threat is and how it works. But I think by making that playbook where you you know, sketch out, here's our possible actions at this level, it helps people see and helps everyone stay on the same page. And I really think it helps your users as well because then they see consistent reporting. They see consistent actions taken. And they know when something's important because you've done something different and you've done something rare. Mm, right, right. So when you do sound the alarm... They know you mean it. Right. And, you know, we saw this again and again last year, and we're going to continue to see it, right? Cyber threats are not going to go away. And so I really hope that as companies find security issues, that they try and think about, is this something that's really going to be severe for the average user? Uh, Because, you know, like I said, you can have severe issues, but if they're so impossibly hard to exploit that the average user is never going to see them exploited, I think you owe it to the audience to make sure that they know that so that they can patch other issues that are more urgent. All right, Craig Williams, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>